Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 21, Gods, Woods, and Monsters. I am Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Hello. Hey. Hey bro. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> this week uh, on the Davos Fingers podcast, we have uh, five chapters from Clash of Kings for you. Uh, it's two from Tyrion, number three and four. Brand two, Sansa two, and Arya five. That's chapters 15 to 19 according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Uh, as always, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark, and uh, we always warn you with Matt's uh, lovely musical jingle. Uh, and also, if you want to contact us, I always throw this out there. we got lots of different ways. Uh, you can reach us through davosfingers.com. That's our Tumblr site. Uh, email at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com. Uh, through Facebook, through our Twitter at davosfingers. And uh, we also got the iTunes thing going, too, if you want to just leave a review. And uh, news. So, uh, two two pieces. Uh, first, I said goodbye to two dear friends this week that have helped me through uh, many hours over the last five years. Raylan Givens uh, and Boyd Crowder, the two main characters from the series Justified, which ended this year, this uh, this week. So so long to those guys. It's been a spoiler fun alert. Jeez. Yeah. What do you mean spoiler alert? What did they live through the end? I don't even know what show you're talking about. Oh, Please Justified. Continue. It's wonderful. Uh, if you love the idea of old westerns, like an old west gunslinger that has to live in today's world, uh, that's that's kind of uh, the angle for at least the first season of Justified. But uh, good show. He pulled first. I shot him. Anyway, uh, Timothy Oliphant uh, is uh, is the main character and producer. Good show. Enjoy a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. Who Kevin wouldn't? Smith t- hates Timmy. Tim Tim Oliphant, so you'd probably love him, Brooke. Why does he hate him? I don't know. Yeah, why does he hate him? I didn't know that story. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know that he hates him. He, uh, I, I watched an interview where he was like dissing on him a little bit. They did a movie together. They did. Um, oh, that's Catch right, and Catch and Release. release. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Catch and Release, reasonable film. I think uh, I think Smith's just jealous of Oliphant's good looks and everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so- he's not. Because Kevin Smith is hot. <laughs> More importantly, he's just not that worried about looks. Uh, but second and way more important piece of news, uh, unless you're living under a rock, you have by now seen the new Star Wars Episode Seven teaser trailer. Uh, it dropped the day before we recorded, so yesterday, um, which is like a week and two days ago or something for you guys if you're listening on release day. Uh, I think all three of us are still crying tears, uh, mostly of joy. Um, we're not going to do like a full review of the trailer here or anything but like that, but uh, suffice to say, I think we were all moved. Uh, we're all extremely excited. I grabbed my, my son, Mary, and showed him the preview repeatedly, and he kept begging to watch it over and over. And when I finally said, okay, no, we're done, he made me keep saying, Chewy, we're home. Chewy. And and keep in mind, Mary has never seen these films. Like he's never seen any of the Star Wars films, and he's just like blown away by this trailer. I loved it. It was like adorbs. Well, apart from your parenting fail, how has he not seen those movies? Well, because he's not even three yet. I didn't think you'd. I didn't. I didn't think you'd appreciate them. I'm starting tomorrow. To be honest. We're That's gonna, three years. Come on, man. We're going to pop in uh, episode four tomorrow. Is a good time to watch it. Yeah. So we're going to pop in episode four tomorrow. We'll see how he responds. He's excited. I told him we're going to watch it. He's like, yeah. I, I couldn't even, like, 
control my emotions when well the whole the whole thing was good the whole trailer was excellent but when Han and Chewie came on screen like I still get tingles just thinking about it like I let out like this squeal at work like I was like <laughs> like that but louder <laughs> and then like tears sprang to my eyes it was it was an incredible feeling <laughs> Yeah, but I'm I'm kind of being silly, but it's true. Like it really does take you back to this this feeling of childhood, just glee again. I I don't know. Star Wars is a big part of my life in many ways, and and so seeing that again was was pretty cool. And then complete agreement, myself and my podmate were like, I was like, I've never been so uncontrolled and unprofessional at work. I was like kicking in my seat, and and and. and <laughs> swearing and yelling loudly and sent it to everybody I knew. And thank you very much, Matt, by the way, for like giving us the the heads up seconds after the trailer dropped, because then I got credit for passing it on to my oh, extended network. I was like, I yeah, um, I'm in the know. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got Abrams on the speed dial. Well, they're having that Star Wars celebration, so I was like watching Twitter all day, just waiting for something because I knew they were gonna release something big. Yeah, mm-hmm. I pinged you in the morning. I was like, "It's celebration day, right? Or is it celebrate? What yep. is it? Celebration day? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever it's called, that festival. I was like, "It's today, right? We're gonna see it." I was, I was like, giddy with anticipation. Anyway, uh, we spent enough time on it. Uh, hope, hope you guys are all as excited as we are. We're stoked. So say we all. So say we all. All right, but let's get back to uh, Song of Ice and Fire, well, the reason everyone's here. I think we have uh, Brickles leading us off with Tyrion 3 today. You want to go ahead and, and uh, kick off, uh, kick it off, Brooke? Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. This chapter opens to the small council discussing Stannis' proclamation of Joffrey's illegitimacy and Cersei's whorishness. They only have two copies of the announcement from lesser-known houses, but this tells them that likely the entire Seven Kingdoms knows that Stannis is ruthlessly gunning for the Iron Throne. So Cersei is just shriekingly mad, and Tyrion is legit impressed with her acting skills, the accusations of incest and treason against her being 100% true. She wants every copy of the proclamation found and burned, but Tyrion, being more public relations savvy, suggests not addressing Stannis, thereby letting the announcement become unsubstantiated rumor that it could possibly be. Littlefinger agrees and proposes that they take it to the next level by planting rumors in brothels and beer houses that Stannis' own daughter, Shireen, who is the poor disfigured girl we met back in the prologue, that she is the bastard daughter of Patchface, her loyal fool. So take that, Stannis. Your distasteful wife slept with a fool, and your kid ain't yours. That's no one... so Westeros National Enquirer. It's... I just love it. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one will ever take Stannis seriously again. In, last, in, in the last episode, I brought up Jerry Springer. I brought it up one episode too early. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, this really takes it. Um, so that all taken care of. 
Tyrion scoots out to meet with the headsmiths from King's Landing. So he's having them build a chain, a huge chain, each link the size of a head, which he jokingly tells Cersei is a gift for Joffrey. And we don't get like any clues what the chain is for, but Tyrion does have the smiths halt production of city watch armor to make it. And I really love this part. When one uppity craftsman claims he and his apprentices are too good to make a plain old chain, he offers Tyrion an exquisite suit of armor with devil horns instead, which I think would be awesome. But Tyrion tells him to make chains or be put in them. And that's the end of that. So, bossing people around for the day done, Tyrion heads off to a brothel, knowing full well that Cersei's spies and Varys' little birds are watching his every move. Uh, we are introduced to uh, Chatea, which is how I'm going to pronounce it, the owner of the place, who comes from the Summer Isles, where there is no real shame in sex work, and in fact, highborn girls often serve in pillow houses, as they're called, for a few years before they're married to honor the gods. As if to prove her point, she hooks up Tyrion with her daughter, Alea, and off to diddle they go. But wait, Alea is but a ruse. In the room she takes Tyrion to, there's a secret passage built into the wardrobe which leads Tyrion to the brothel stables and to Varys, who has been missing from the small council meeting that morning because he was out and about in disguise. And it's a pretty good disguise. It's got like a, a funny metal hat and stubble and a, a little scar on his cheek. You gotta wonder <laughs> if he does his own makeup. I was impressed. Uh, he even has the smell of garlic about him to, uh, to complete the disguise. It turns out Tyrion has Shay squirreled away in the far northeast corner of King's Landing, pretending to go whoring is the best way to throw off his followers so that he can go and visit her in secret. So Varys helps Tyrion disguise himself as a child and saddle an old horse to take to Shay's house. And while he does that, Tyrion relays the council meeting from that morning that Varys had missed. Of course, Varys already knew about Stannis' announcement, and while he doesn't say he believes the incest accusation outright, he does remark that many people could come to the same conclusion Stannis did, since Robert sired eight bastards that Varys knows about, to mostly light-haired women, and each baby was born with raven-black hair, except for the three royal offspring. So the chapter ends with a great line from Tyrion. And yeah, Scott, I'm going to read it. <clears throat> Lord Varys, he said from the saddle, sometimes I feel as though you are the best friend I have in King's Landing, and sometimes I feel you are my worst enemy. And Fairy says, how odd, I think quite the same as you. And again, I lament that they are not besties, because they would get along so well, giggling and gossiping together. They really would. Both really yeah. smart, intelligent men, but... Uh... I think they would be the real odd couple. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. can you see them, like, they got, like, an apartment, you know, like a, a two-bedroom... 
they kind of have guests over and like they berate <laughs> them and like I think it, it's a sitcom dream. Yeah, it's either that or they would be like the perfect frenemies. Like they can't stay away from each other, but at the same time they're always trying to one up each other and and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I, it'd be it'd be a joy to watch. I would watch hint HBO. I would watch a spinoff show with just those two in some uh, alternate reality. It'd be brilliant. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> they, I mean, in all seriousness, they're they're kind of similar players uh, of the game. Uh, very much relying on their wit. You know, Ferris kind of relying a lot more on uh, a network of information. Tyrion relying on his family's prestige and power. But very much, you know, using their heads to play the game. Right and uh, yeah, you kind of you kind of wonder if they'd be I don't know what parallel to draw, but you know there's stories all over the place of these two individuals that are both driven uh, you know to their own greatness by their kind of rival or, or similar <clears throat> similar but opposite uh, compatriot uh, um, Magneto and Xavier perhaps or mm. uh, or maybe <laughs> a real example uh, Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King yeah. Okay. yeah. But, you know, it, it, it'd be interesting to see where these people go. Unfortunately, they don't r- really live in a world where you can be friends. <laughs> they, they can't be friends, not really, you know. Not, not in the Game of Thrones, that's for sure. Yeah. Speaking of friends, I didn't mention in my summary, but we do get introduced to just a cutie of a character in this <laughs> chapter. Can you guess who I'm talking about? It's Podrick Payne. Oh, oh, pod. oh, little pod! You said so, you said introduced, so that threw me off. But uh, isn't that the first time we meet him? Oh no, no we, we met him, him back Game in Game of Thrones, of Thrones when Shay but, showed up. Uh, the same, the same uh, chapter. No, this is where we really get introduced to his cuteness, though. Damn it! How did I miss that? Oh, I really enjoy me some Patrick Payne. I don't know because so cute. I actually happened to listen to that episode today. Don't ask why, um, but I went back and listened to that episode and. We, co- we, yeah, we covered it that, that uh, we actually talked about how Podrick and Shay kind of show up together and they're, you know, he kind of has very different reactions to them that, that he loves her for her cleverness and, um, you know, kind of behavior and, and despises him for his, sim- his seeming simplicity. Um, so we kind of discussed it, but. Right. I feel like maybe his reaction to Podrick in this book is different before he kind it of really is. presented yeah. him. And now it's kind of pitying. And I wonder right. because he's in a better position. I mean, look at, look how sharp Tyrion is dressing. He's got uh, his, his lover all hooked up. He's got half of the small council under his thumb already. The other half he's working on it. Uh, he's defying Cersei left and right. Uh, he gets to watch Cersei make a fool of herself. Uh, did I mention he's dressing really well? I thought he looked really good in his little lion head studded doublet. Um, and he's got his cook. So he's in a really... Wait, he's got his what? His cook. Oh, I thought he said he's got his cock. Yeah, he does. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, he does I don't know. It could be argued that Shay has that. Uh, yeah, it could be argued that Shay has that, um, especially since he, well, I, I thought it was interesting that he could have laid or had sex with this young Alea, Chatea's daughter, very easily. Like, I mean, he was there, he, he paid for it, 
She was willing. Uh, he was ready. But he didn't. He has this... this um, I think he, he's in a real relationship with Shay at this point. At least he feels he is. Yeah, I mean... Even if he's not ready to uh, admit it yet, he's going to great lengths for this little um, shuddy-voo. It shouldn't be forgotten, Tyrion's origin, we can remind the reader a little bit. Uh, you know, he was a virgin before he met the uh, quote-unquote Crofter's daughter, and fell in love with her and probably would have been faithful for his whole life. The way that situation turned out with watching his father's men rape her, well, have sex with her, I guess, and it wasn't technically rape. Um, but uh, It was and, rape. And, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then have to finish himself as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, that ruined him for a long, long time. And Shay is kind of opening him back up to you know, maybe more kind of the person he is, which is, a, you know, a loyal person. You can see it in his relationships with his family. He's a loyal guy. I don't think this is really uh, too surprising, you know, other than, you know, surprising when any man turns something like that down, I suppose. Yeah, I guess I guess he's just really reaching his potential as the Hand of the King in every other way, except he's not taking this particular entitlement which is just indicative of how loyal he is to Shay, which just makes it more remarkable. Yeah, well put. Um, yeah. Well put. Thank you. But uh, good point, Scatty. Good point. He is messed up. So how about Varys? I, I love... Well, well, <clears throat> well, maybe I'm the only one that resonated, this resonated with. The third-rate actor that I am, uh, fourth-rate maybe, uh, <laughs> I just love Varys. Like, his, he's so committed to these characters and these roles that he creates. Brooke, what you mentioned, like, I wonder if he does his own makeup. Yeah, he does his own makeup, for sure. <laughs> yeah, he does. Because I've done Confirmed. my own, and, and he's way more into it than I am. And, uh, but, but, but on a serious note, you wonder, guys like this, like, I don't know, you see it in spy shows and everything all the time, like, um, <clears throat> the, 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 the message of, like, when you're pretending to be somebody for so long or... Or, or even all these different characters, do you even remember who you are? Do you do you know? Do you, like, do you have a sense of self, or do you just at some point inhabit these characters for so long that you're just them, right? Because he is that committed to these characters when he is them, and is his court the perfumed, uh, you know, sandal wearing guy? Is is that a character too? Who's the real Varys, right? It's it's uh, it's kind of cool. Thanks to make sure that no one ever finds out who the real Varys is. Yeah. 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 And we discussed it last chapter, but uh, he never drops character. Like he never fully confides in anyone. Like you might be kind of in the real world, less forthcoming, say with a boss or colleagues, but then you're get, definitely going to have like your work buddy where you can drop all that pretense, kind of like drop any politeness out of your voice and really, really be honest and and not hold back with them. You guys like the three of us, like the three of us. You mean like you mean like the two of us now? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I'm leaving. Yeah. Work buddies forever or just for another week. Sad. But but no, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, but Varys, I don't think he has that with anyone. Yeah. Except maybe, and we've already confirmed that he was talking with Illyrio 
in the caves with uh, when Arya overheard them. And their relationship goes back years. Yeah, so that might be the only his only shuddy, or pardon me, his only shuddy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. Never know. That's the real Varys. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, sure. But that's exactly and... speaking to the point. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish your point. Sorry. No, that was just my point that, um, again, I'm a little heartbroken that Tyrion can't be that person, but... Yeah, and, and to, to your point, what's the risk? Like, they're alone in these tunnels, and they, they make a specific note about how even Varys's laugh is altered. Like, dude, you don't gotta alter your laugh. He's the only one around. He knows who you are. What are you committing to this character for? That's nah, the Varys, no method. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's, why, that's the respect I'm talking about. Anyone, though. Varys knows better than anyone, though, that... There's always somebody listening. There's yeah. always someone there. Yeah. Yeah, or at least that's the mindset you should have, is yeah. that there's always somebody there. Yep. Um, as a <laughs> as a PR major who now does nothing in the field of PR, uh, at least on paper, I loved I loved uh, seeing Cersei go totally bonkers about having to burn all the all the letters and everything. Uh, it's just it's just classic of like a. Uh, remember that commercial from a couple years ago, and it's a situation we've all found ourselves in, <clears throat> Scott. When uh, you send out an email that has everybody copied on it, and you only meant to send it to one or two people, maybe that work buddy that you can confide in, but instead you send it to everybody. I've never done this, and I, I just remember that commercial about. where they they send out the a guy sends out an email, and it's everybody's copied on it. So he goes running from cubicle to cubicle, like <laughs> ripping everyone's computers out of the wall and like deleting their emails and stuff like that. And he goes around to everybody and he feels like he got it. But I don't remember how the commercial ends, if he did or not. But it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, she just doesn't get it. Um, yeah. I also thought of that episode of The Office with Michael Scott where they uh, where they have a crisis where some – guy playing a prank you know they sell paper at, in, on the office right and some guy comes in and does a watermark on all hundreds of reams of paper uh, have this watermark on each sheet of paper of like a duck and a mouse having sex or something like that i remember that episode and <laughs> do you remember that episode yeah. and michael scott's first reaction is we've got to call a press conference to refute all the claims and everything. And like, if they would have just kept it quiet and not told anybody, they could have apologized to all the people that received the paper, probably just cleared it up, no problem. But instead, he calls a press conference, so the news gets wind of it. It's talked about in the newspapers, and it turns into this big thing. Here's the thing. When a company screws up, best thing to do is call a press conference. Alert the media, and then you control the story. Wait for them to find out, and the story controls you. That's what happened to OJ. And uh, totally Cersei. Totally Cersei. The only way you can deal with something like that, a PR blunder like that, is to just own it like a boss. Yeah, I meant to or, send it to everybody. Yeah, I want yeah. that duck fucking that mouse. Yeah, I sent it out. I'm trying to say something. That's the only thing mm -hmm. you can do. Or yeah. don't say anything yeah. and just hope yeah, it, it goes pass. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's PR 101 is if you don't want – if you want to put the fire out, don't stoke the flames. Just, yeah. Let it lie, and it'll go away eventually. So yeah, I was what, lesson, what lesson is Little Fingers, where you make up a, an equally terrible rumor? Yeah. About, about your nemesis. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's the uh, that's that's the publicist side of things, not the PR side. Uh, yeah, I happen to be watching the, an episode of uh, House of Cards right before this, and uh, <clears throat> the main character is getting uh, is about to get smeared for what they say is causing causing a girl to have a car accident with some completely outlandish reason. And he goes back and smears the exact opposite way on a completely equally outlandish uh, claim. He's threatening the guy that he'll, he'll use that. And yeah, it's uh yeah. Yeah. And what equally frustrating is Tyrion being as humble. He is about some of the things he's doing because it, I get the impression that around King's Landing among the small folk, Tyrion's not a very popular right now. Uh, he's looked upon with disdain and everything, yet he's doing a lot to make sure that he's doing what he can to make sure that this city survives and not just the rich, but everybody, you know, he's, what did it say that he's done? He's like, uh, set people to building fishing boats so they can, you know, start bringing in some food because they're starting to like almost eat each other. They're so hungry in the city. Um, and Tyrion needs to do a little PR campaign for himself. I think, uh, he needs to say like, Hey, I'm the one that is uh, having you build these boats. Hey, you know that really corrupt leader of the City Watch named Jono Slint? Do you know what? I sent him up to the wall. That was me that did that. Uh, that Al Ardim guy who's such a jerk, I sent him there too. Oh, and by the way, I'm having him thrown overboard, so he's going to die. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, Tyrion's being a little humble, at least outwardly, and I think he needs – I think things would go a little better for him if he owned up to some of the good things he's doing. Yeah, you know what? You got to wonder because one, they're just missing those lines of communication, right? Like yes. it's it's, yeah. it's not like he's going to be hiring knights to read proclamations at the ports of King's Landing. Yeah, you're trying, you're trying too hard, dude. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so that's missing. But also, he might be aware that no matter what he does, um, people will still be suspect because of his being a dwarf and a Lannister and yeah, I think being he feel, a Lannister I, principally, I think yeah. he feels both work against him in a way that he doesn't think PR is going to help that yeah. he does, the, but you can tell it bugs him too. Oh yeah. He, he's accepted it already, but reading his inner thoughts, it really bothers him. Yeah. As, but, well, I, it seems to bother him mostly because he's being smarter about it than Cersei. Yeah. Yeah. But, she she's she's getting uh, credit for strengthening their um, yeah. defenses in the Night's Watch. Yeah. Like, it's like, well, I'm actually feeding them. Right. <laughs> so it's more like he's worried about showing her up and not getting credit for that. But I well, I think that's I think that's his strategy. So there's a in sports there's a a saying, winning cures everything. And I think what he's banking on is what that means is like if there's turmoil in the locker room, this guy doesn't like that guy payment, you know, people are upset about whether they're being paid, whatever. If you're winning a bunch of games, everybody just shuts up and is happy. Like, winning cures everything. And I think that's what he's counting on, is if he feeds everybody and their lives improve, they'll start to respect him more. He doesn't have to do the PR campaign bit, right? Yeah. But he's wet and he's ready to be patient. Yeah. Um, right. Because we'll talk about this more in the next Tyrion chapter. Gosh, it's hard to distinguish what happens in which I chapter. Know. I'm sitting <laughs> here thinking, does this happen in this one or the yeah. or the next one? But uh, he's willing, and this is what I like about him, to play the long game. To, Cersei plays a short game. He's playing the long game. He's willing to do the long, slow rebuild, to use another sports metaphor, uh, hoping that it will pay off later. 
So uh, that's a great transition, Matt. We should move on uh, to uh, to Bran, and I think that's you. You want to take us away? Five, six, seven, eight. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower where your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored, and the summer's gonna come. You know it's gonna come. Summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. So Bran awakes one morning not particularly excited about the day's prospects because it's harvest feast time where all the lords and all the different uh, kingdoms of Westeros all gather together. This, In this case, in the north, they gather at Winterfell to discuss rationing of crops and other logistical items, have a little bit of japery like jousting and stuff, uh, but also to participate in this big feast, this big get-together. So as Roderick Cassell tells Bran, however, a man does not cross a hundred leagues for a sliver of duck and a sip of wine. Only those who have matters of import to set before us are like to make the journey. So it is a lot of behind-the-scenes politicking that goes along uh, during the Harvest Feast as well. And as the de facto Lord of Winterfell, Bran doesn't get to be down with the other kids, jousting and playing around and stuff. Instead, he gets to sit in council with all the old guys, even though it's well understood that Roderick and Maester Lewin get to do most of the heavy lifting as it pertains to decision making. So Hodor arrives at Bran's room, help him get dressed and carry him downstairs. And on their way out, they stop in the yard to watch the squires of the various lords jousting. Their big and little Walder resort to their classic tactic of bullying the innocent Hodor. Bran stands up to the two little douchebags until Lewin angrily separates everyone and escorts Bran to meet with Wyman Manderley. We remember old Wyman the walrus, who's been kept waiting. On the way, however, Lewin quietly confides that he's proud of Bran for defending Hodor. And aren't we all? We then dive headlong into a wide array of topics, so I'll try to kind of cover them as efficiently as we can in the interest of time. The first is that of northern independence. So Wyman Manderley, perhaps understanding what will be needed if the north is to be an independent nation, offers to begin minting currency and building a fleet of warships, all of which Lewin and Cassell promised to bring up with Rob via letter. But the main topic of conversation and one that spills over to the other lords is that of Donella Hornwood, Lady Donella Hornwood. So having lost her husband, the Lord of Hornwood, and their only son at the Green Fork and Whispering Wood, of course, battles uh, with Rob Stark, or for Rob Stark, she's left without an heir. Therefore, if a lord were to marry her, they would also inherit all the Hornwood lands, which are fairly substantial. And it appears that perhaps unfairly, the decision of who she gets to marry would rest with her liege lord, Rob Stark. So speaking with Lewin, Cassell, and Bran, the widowed Wyman Manderley puts forth his candidacy to be her new husband, uh, claiming that his relation to her as a cousin is further evidence of a logical match. Later, the Umbers also ask her for her hand with uh, Kaluan. That's what I'm going to start calling Cassell and Maester Lewin. Kaluan, <laughs> promising to consider it. So as for Lady Hornwood herself, huh, who'd have thunk to ask her what she thinks? She worries that someone would marry her to get her lands, then perhaps consider her disposable after the pact is made. In particular, she's afraid of the Boltons, who are currently being run by Roos's bastard son, the psycho Ramsay Snow, while his father is at war. 
Roos's only legitimate son, Domeric, died a bit mysteriously a while back, and many believe the obviously loco Ramsay and his stinky henchman Reek had much to do with that. Uh, and we also find that Ramsay is amassing troops at the Dreadfort, where the Boltons live, uh, but he won't say why, and Hornwood is worried that he's coming for her lands. So Kaluan promises to protect her from the Boltons if it comes to it, and uh, Lady Hornwood expresses her dissatisfaction at the suitors who are coming out of the woodworks to ask for her hand. So, But after she departs, Lewin points out that Hornwood is totally into Roderick Cassell, <laughs> which sucks because in an age where strong marriages, quote-unquote strong, are measured more by the size of the house than the size of the love, the modest holdings of Cassell just can't compete with the Manderleys or the Umbers. So this type of talk totally goes on with other houses throughout this two-day period, intermixed with Bran being bored and also getting a peep at Osha's naked body in the godswood. But the chapter ends when Bran, triggered by the arriving news of Stannis' claim of Joffrey's illegitimacy, has another three-eyed crow dream. And in this one, or maybe we could call it a vision, uh, but in this one, the crow pecks out his eyes, telling him to fly. And after he's pecked out his eyes and Bran can't see anymore, the crow pecks at his brow all the way through his skull. It makes my head hurt just thinking about it. And suddenly, after he pecks this hole through Bran's skull, he can see again. And he finds himself clinging to the side of a tower, about to fall, when a golden man appears above him saying, the things I do for love, then kicking him out into the empty air. And the chapter ends. It's all coming back, it's all coming back to Brad now. right like like so was he just is this his repression technique like he remembers what happened and but he's repressed it and then this was like a huge reminder but it's just leaking in his visions like oh so upsetting that he doesn't remember it clearly and then can't well at this point doesn't remember it clearly Right. The, uh, you know, the first inclination when you get the three-eyed crow and everything is there's some sort of magic going on or, or otherworldly visions and stuff. But I wonder that too. Is this also just psychology at work? I, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know. Yeah, man. Triggers, right? Yeah, it seems right. like it. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. I, I remember back, uh, back in the, 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 the chapter way before with Brand's dreams and we commented or I think I specifically commented about – they kind of tell him the the crow kind of tells him to suppress it like don't don't deal with that right now you can't deal with that right now deal with waking up first we'll deal with the past later is kind of the subtext of what the crow was saying or the the raven it's a raven or a crow it's a crow 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 what the three-eyed crow is telling him and it's almost like okay now you're ready to learn this part too right it's almost like it's it's kind of being staged for him as part of his comeback Get what I mean? I'm interested to see where it goes. You know, a common theme, just to touch on this one probably rather quickly, is it's a rather small part of the chapter, but one that we're starting to see is a common theme in A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole series is the idea of the knight, of the sere, and uh, how they 
you know, how how the title of being a ser compares to the actual actions of the person with the title. And we see saw that here with Bran, that the one who has the least uh, potential at this point because of his physical um, condition to actually become a knight in the classical sense of carrying around a sword and riding around on horses saving people. He's the only one that stands up and defends Hodor, does what the classic chivalrous knight should do. Mm-hmm. And it's the ones who do have the potential to become knights, the the Walders and everyone else, who are, are, are bags. Uh, I think it's a cool theme, and it's one that we're going to see later on in this episode, too. And we've already seen. God, I hate the phrase. Oh, my God, I hate them. <laughs> Those little kids. Ugh. I almost feel, though, that they're products of their upbringing. Like, there's no way to come sure. out of the, the, the twins, not a dick bag. Yeah, maybe. Oh, freaking Walder. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, go little Bran for defending Hodor. And also, I love that we got... a. A closer look at Hodor and and his history and like I I love the story of well I didn't love it but I appreciated <laughs> <laughs> I loved it when he got poked I by those relished kids in, in the it. alleyway <laughs> um, I appreciated that he is a gentle soul and he is probably altruistically helping Bran because he just wants to be helpful and and probably cares a lot for Bran and Bran being young definitely takes advantage of Hodor and, and takes him for granted. But I, I'm, I'm really comforted by the fact that Bran has such a, a loyal helper. And um, they put a lot of emphasis on, on the fact that Hodor may be simple and gentle and nonviolent, but he could very well be like super strong, almost seven feet tall, quick learner. They, yeah. they mentioned that. Yes, yes, exactly. That even Bran says you could have been a knight if you weren't so dim-witted. So it's it's interesting. Like like I, Hodor is definitely more than what meets the eye, and what his future will be is something I look forward to. Yeah, right. Speaking of big guys, how about Manderly? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm bringing it back to Manderly. So my, oh, my, my little Manderly. My favorite bit about Manderly in this chapter is his jolly excuse for Bran being late. Oh <laughs> yeah, a prince is never late. Everyone else is just early. What a suck ass! It reminded me so much of Gandalf in the a "Wizard is never late." Frodo, he arrives right, precisely, precisely when he intends to. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Except Gandalf wasn't sucking up to a nine-year-old. <laughs> no, that's true. But, it, you know, it's a similar yeah, no, message. But that's yeah. what it reminded me of. But it hurt but, in my head, too. Also, though, like, he's just kind of, uh, you know, like, we got this whole world of, like, little fingers and, and, and varices of, of people, like, striving to, like, claw their way to the top. And Manderly's just this fat, content guy that's like, you know what? I'm going to do right by my liege lord. I want to make you some money. I want to make you some ships. Tell me what to do. I'm on your side. He's just kind of content with where he is. I like him. 
he he brings up some very good points. Like, hey, if we're going to be an independent nation, we're going to need money. We're probably going to need ships to defend ourselves. We're going to need all this stuff. And it was kind of disappointing to me anyways that Lewin and Cassell were like, okay, yeah, we'll write a letter to Rob and ask him about it. It's like, yeah. no, this is this is actually really important stuff. Like, What's the point of having a steward really if they this. can't make any decisions? Right. Like, Manderly yeah, can just we'll write, write Rob himself. He has Ravens. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll write Rob and ask him about it. No big yeah. deal. You know, we'll see what he says. Almost kind of like, okay, next topic. Yeah. That's actually really important forward-thinking stuff that, that Wyman's doing. And yeah. maybe we should at least make some sort of call. Yep. I think that might just be further evidence that Lewin is just – we've talked about this before. He's just worn out. Like, yeah. It's kind of at the end of his rope. Yeah. It's also kind of – you know, it's a statement about kings. Kings make decisions. It's one of the reasons mm-hmm. there aren't a whole lot of kingships left. It's pretty taxing for one guy to have to do all of that stuff. So right. um, Taxing and damning as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And impossible. Um, yeah. the, we brought up the longships. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows what longships are. I had a little question in my head, so I went and researched them. So if you don't know what a longship is, it's kind of like it, – it's basically the big Viking ships, if you can imagine those – Lots of oars on each side, the striped flag, that whole bit. Um, mostly good for like transporting and boarding uh, other ships. Good for trade, obviously, and stuff like that. But we're not we're not talking about like pirate ships with like cannons or anything like that. These are like the long rowing ships that that can hold a lot of guys and you know mainly just transporting. So that's what they're talking about when they talk about long ships. Huh. Thank you, Professor Scott. You're welcome. <laughs> and also. For this brand chapter, and because I love Manderly, I have a word of the day. Brand mentions that he knows that men sleep on top of women. <laughs> I was going to bring up this quote. That was my favorite quote of the whole chapter. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, I'm either doing it wrong, or the education system in Winterfell needs some tweaking. But in honor of Brand's understanding of how women and men just sleep, I came up with the word of the day. Word of the day! Yeah. Manderlay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> to lay on top of your spouse or significant other in a way that does not behoove them sleeping. The Manderlay. All right. That's uh, a good one. I love that line. I wrote it down because I loved it so much. Brand knew that men slept on top of women when they shared a bed. <laughs> Sleeping under Lord Manderley must be like sleeping under a fallen horse. <laughs> it's pretty brilliant. All right, let's move on. Uh, Tyrion, we got you again, Brooke. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please. Ah, oh, so much Tyrion this episode. Can't get enough. And this chapter, oh my gosh, I can't wait. I love this Take little chapter. Away, yeah. Oh my gosh. Love it. So it really focuses on one thing, and that's Tyrion besting his nemesi on the small council and better establishing his dominance. It's so straightforward that Tyrion actually counts out his victories in some sort of masterful internal dialogue. It's really great. So, one, 
Tyrion and Grand Meister Pacell are enjoying a simple breakfast of boiled eggs, stewed plums, and porridge. Not the most enticing meal described in the series, but as Pycelle says, he likes to keep it simple during these trying times for the realm. And Tyrion likes to eat today because there may be nothing tomorrow, which is a more hedonistic approach, and one I agree with. Obviously, Tyrion has several motives for this lame breakfast date because he gets Pycelle to pause eating and send two sealed parchments to the Prince of Dorne, RFN. And RFN is one of my favorite acronyms and one we use a lot at work. It stands for right fucking now. Get this done, RFN. I hear mm-hmm. it probably. I had, to, I had to Google that when someone said that to me. Yeah. Yeah. But now you use it. Someone from Calgary said that to me, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought it was ready for nighttime. <laughs> no. RFN. When do you need this? RFN. That's always the answer. Anyways, maybe one of the reasons I'm leaving? Who knows? Who knows? Well, Pycelle is out of the room, Tyrion pockets a vial of something from Pycelle's impressively organized and labeled collection of medicines. So that's number one. That's how he gets Pycelle. Uh, he doesn't tell Pycelle what's in the scrolls that he's having Pycelle send via Raven to Dorne, and he steals something unnamed from his medicine shelf. So two, Tyrion gets back from briskly dealing with supplicants and putting up with Cersei's casual cruelty to find Littlefinger waiting in the solar. They watch Joffrey shoot hair with crossbows for a while, a good representation of just how unsavory that kid is. And then Tyrion offers Peter refreshments. Peter declines, saying that if you drink with the dwarf, you end up walking the wall, or so everyone says. And this is in reference to Tyrion succinctly dealing with Janos Lent a couple chapters back. I got, I got a good chuckle out of it when I first read that. You drink with the dwarf, you walk on the wall. We also get a neat little background on Littlefinger from Tyrion's point of view. Um, Littlefinger was hired by John Aaron, is of undistinguished birth and prospects. Uh, he's a smart little bugger who doesn't just collect coins, but multiplies them through strategic trading and investments. Within three years, he became master of coin and he was bringing in 10 times the revenue of his predecessor. And that said, the realm has also, was also deeper in debt than it has ever been. So the only truly prosperous player in this case is Littlefinger. So how he nets the sly cat, how Tyrion gets his number two, is by asking him, asking Littlefinger, to take an offer to Liza Aaron in the Eyrie. So, as I understand it, this got a little convoluted. If Liza aligns with the crown and proclaims for Joffrey, Tyrion will give her the name of the true killer of her husband, John Aaron. If you recall, in Game of Thrones, Liza Aaron accused Tyrion of killing John Aaron. He will also call off the clansmen who are harassing the gates to the Eyrie. He'll make Robert Aaron. Liza's son and heir to the Airy, our sweet Robin, warden of the East, and Tyrion will seal the deal by giving Liza his niece, Marcilla, to foster and eventually marry Robert. 
So why does Littlefinger need to deliver this message? Tyrion knows that Liza will listen to Littlefinger and that no one else could convince her to move troops out of the Eyrie to help defend against Stannis and Renly. So to sweeten the situation for Littlefinger, Tyrion promises him Harrenhal, making Littlefinger Lord of the Trident. So Littlefinger is all over this, and he actually loses his cool and gets a little like twitchy trying to hide how thirsty he is for Harrenhal. So Tyrion counts it as his second win of the day. So three, Varys comes to Tyrion's bedchamber that night because it seems like Varys can't resist bragging about knowing what was in those letters Tyrion had Grand Meister Pycelle send that morning. And Varys guesses correctly. To secure the Dornish prince, Tyrion has offered Prince Doran a seat on the small council, as well as the delivery of the killer of Doran Martell's sister, Elia. Now, if you recall, Elia was married to Rhaegar Targaryen. They had a infant son. And everyone's favorite Clegane is the one who actually raped, killed her, and killed the son. So, and a daughter, too. And a daughter, yes. And a daughter as well. So the Dornishmen are... are still pretty upset about this and pretty much blame the Lannisters and have been keeping to themselves ever since, since Sakasus Mappas, they're pretty far removed from the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, and they can be, and they're pretty self-sufficient. But, of course, Tyrion could really use their support and troops right now. So to sweeten this deal, Tyrion would send Tommen down to Dorne to foster and this is a win-win since Tyrion is serious about getting Marcella and Tommen away from the terrible influence of Cersei and Joffrey. Both Tyrion and Varys know that Tommen is a sweet kid who is easily influenced and also Joffrey's direct heir. So he is extremely valuable. Varys warns Tyrion that Cersei may give up one kid to be fostered away from King's Landing but definitely not two kids. And guess what? I'm going to do it again. I got a little something to read. Hold on. So Barry says, and if her grace were to discover your intentions before your plans are ripe, why Tyrion said, then I would know the man who told her to be my certain enemy. And when Barry's giggled, he thought three and so that's how he hooks Varys. So basically, Tyrion has three members of the small council, Grandmeister Pycelle, Littlefinger, and Varys, somewhat under his thumb through his scheming. And he is so impressed with himself. And that's the end of the chapter. Oh. <laughs> Tyrion and his element. I know, right? We were, so, we were impressed when he, when he tricked Janos Slint. Uh, and, and sent him up to the wall. This is like that times 300. It's, it's magnificent. Yeah. yeah and <clears throat> I would, I would quibble a little bit about your first one. I don't know why he took the vial, but I think what he has on Pycelle is that he knows Pycelle read the message because he notes that while he sent two messages up to be sent by two Ravens, only one Raven flies from the window Pycelle has actually pocketed that other letter. Oh, I didn't pick up and, on that detail. And knows, and knows what he sent. 
So Pycelle is in possession of some information that I think Tyrion meant for him to have. And different information, perhaps, than the others have. He totally meant for it. Like, he was was all saying stuff like, oh, it's only between you and me. And Pycelle (laughs) is just like, oh, oh, oh. And he's trying to really passively go about trying to find out what it is. (laughs) That exchange of them going back and forth is really funny. Yeah. Yeah, see, and and what I was focused on was that exchange where Pycelle is, like, sleepy and bumbling and old and... His, his sort of, like, judgy, stubborn self. But then when Tyrion observes his wall of tinctures and medicine and crap, each one is carefully placed and carefully labeled with very precise handwriting, obviously Pycelle's. So yeah. what he's observing is that Pycelle actually has a very, I think he says it at one point in the chapter, a very orderly mind. Um, and so it, it's, it's just confirmation that Pycelle is totally playing everybody with this bumbling yeah. old man shtick. Agreed. Yeah. He, he knows that for sure. And not everyone else does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they do, by the way, they do a great job of this in the show. The actor portraying Pycelle does an excellent job of kind of these, He's brilliant. these two versions of himself, the super capable man that he shows very, very rarely anybody. Uh, versus, you know, this bumbling fool like you're talking about, Brooke. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a that's a good, like, foil for the show versus the book, too, because in the book, we can only... We only know what that point-of-view character is seeing or thinking. So... Yeah. So we don't get the clues that Pycelle is actually super smart and schemy. Mm-hmm. We have to figure it out on our own. Yeah. There's kind of a little throwaway line that goes along with this. Uh, Tyrion's noting Maester Pycelle's chain of office, right? And he says, It seemed to Tyrion that the gold and silver and platinum links far outnumbered those of baser metals. Mm. I thought that was telling about uh, the facade that maybe Pycelle puts on the outside, but the foundation might not be there. He, well, he had to make it to that position somehow, too the grandmeister he had to have some ambition and some yep strategy to get there yeah i mean we've talked a little bit about the 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 maester situation before and like what their motivations are how do you rise in the ranks of that is it just as the family you're with rises you go with them like how does that all really work as a maester it's kind of interesting because you're not Mm -hmm. supposed to play the political game you just kind of follow the family you're with or or the house that you're with it's kind of weird Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I also loved all of the background we got on Littlefinger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Truly humble beginnings. And His throwaway th- line about taking the virginity of both Tully girls. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I had their I had their maiden yeah, heads. Is that it. familiar enough? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I what I loved about the Littlefinger thing was he's he's found a niche a niche that other people don't take advantage of. And that's uh, the underutilized but skilled. All these kind of secondary or tertiary positions in life, like not lords, not ladies, not knights. They're like the people that collect taxes, the people that man gates, the people that like he's controlling all of those little areas and making a percentage, right? And making Mm -hmm. them his men and making them loyal. 
And it's just some, they're just the ignored population that nobody else bothers with. And I love it. It's like, it's like a revolution of the people. It makes me want to root for Littlefinger. And the great thing about it also is he doesn't have to really be accountable for anything that's going on. Yeah. Like they talk about how the the kingdom's in debt and everything. He's just like, well, well, Robert told me to spend the money, so I did. Yep. Where does he find the time? I mean, his countenance is always so relaxed. He's always dressed to the nines and kind of, I don't know, poncy. But underneath that all, he's running several independent businesses. He's got this entire network of key holders and point men. He's the actual master of the coin, so he's got that responsibility. He sits on the small council. He's running his other network of spies to counter Varys's, and and then he's doing all the scheming, and then presumably sleeping around, too. Like, when does he sleep? Yeah. People, that kind of energy scare me. Yeah, they're intimidating. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a special breed for sure. Mm-hmm. I wonder that Not about too many Varys. could rise from his level. I wonder that about Varys sometimes too. With all the information he has, he'd almost just have to be listening to people constantly. But you never see him talk to people that are giving him this information. <laughs> you know, <sighs> like he's he'd just be like constantly receiving yeah, reports. Yeah, constantly to know everything that he knows. But anyway. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I think he 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 knows a lot and he has a lot of reporters, but he also probably talks a good game, like oh, like bluffing. Yeah, yeah, and and making assumptions and going with like the logical answers. Yeah, mm, he probably does read people very well and mm-hmm. knows yeah. what to say to kind of mask what he might not know yet. <laughs> uh, I was going to bring up the bronze stuff, which is pretty. <laughs> Pretty cool. We didn't talk, yes. talk. I don't think you talked too much about it in the summary, but but we it, need to because it's friggin' brawn. No, man. I wanted to save it. For, I wanted to save it for Matt. I was like, yeah. I'm not even going to cover this. Well, I I I particularly two things. So I particularly like him, like how he's studying the fighters, and it makes you wonder in that Egan fight that he had before, like whether at the beginning he's just backing away and kind of parrying and dodging. Like, was he really just learning about how that guy fight fought, not just trying to tire him out? Kind of two strategies exactly. to play. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, though, you get to see Tyrion in this scene, uh, kind of like what he was doing with Varys in that scene with with uh, Jon O'Slint. He's just kind of rapid fire solving problems, and you just get you just get the feeling that he's at home here. This uh, King's Landing and this job is like his God's wood. He's like he's just at home here. This is how he's best, like how he behaves best. You know, it's right up his alley. Yeah. What I love about Braun is he's more than just a henchman or a lackey too. Like he, he gets stuff done and he does it efficiently and he does it without asking questions. That's one thing that I like about him. And and Tyrion probably just loves that he has this guy that he can just say, do this, do this, do this, do this. And Braun's like, all right. And he does it. It gets done somehow. I think that's exactly what you defined as a lackey, Matt. I think your love for him is clouding your judgment. Mm, He's, he's. Yeah, but I just see him as more reliable than that. Eh? Well, see, he's it's less about reliability because he's getting paid. That's that's his Sure. That's his deal. But his sure. capability, like he started out as just a sassy sellsword hanging out at the crossroads, saw his opportunity and took it. But now he's like he's he is vital to Tyrion's operation. And yeah, kudos to Tyrion for being able to recognize that this guy is someone I need to 
take under my wing and become friends with. Yeah. And uh, it's it's paid off in spades for him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that transition is noted when they just describe Bronze hair, that he looks freshly mm-hmm. groomed now. Like he's just adapting to kind of this growth, right? Yeah, he's he's uh, he. You can tell that there's more than just a cell sword to Bron. That he's actually thinking things through, and there's a certain amount of cunning that he possesses. All right, maybe not guys... little finger cunning, but a certain <laughs> amount of cunning. How do you guys feel about Tyrion? More to more to talk about in this chapter? Uh, maybe just to remind us again that um, the the short game that Tyr- that Cersei's playing compared with the long game that Tyrion's playing. Yeah, uh, that was really apparent in this chapter. Cersei's accusation that Tyrion is doing nothing to prepare the city when she's out building, you know, war machines and stuff like that to defend the city. When in reality, Tyrion, through his uh, machinations, is actually doing a lot more. He's out trying to build like kind of long-term relationships with people like the Arons and stuff, who have some sort of military power that they can. Uh, bring to the forefront. I get the impression that if someone were to attack King's Landing right now, it would fall pretty quickly because all they really have is the city watch. And even if Cersei's building all these weapons of war and stuff, it's not going to avail them much if, you know, Renly with all his forces attacks, right? Mm-hmm. But Tyrion, on the other hand, is playing a little bit more of a long game, but in the end, it, it might pay off a little better. So there's an important distinction to make between the two of them. Yeah, Salador Sand said as much in the last chapter uh, with Davos that they could take King's Landing even with Stannis' meager force at this point mm-hmm. pretty easily. Well said, Matt. I'm done. Okay, uh, we'll move on to Sansa, and that's me. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's gonna come for Sansa Stark. Can't be looking like a tolly and a daddy killed a wolfie Sansa Stark. Come to the Godswood tonight if you want to go home. It's a note that uh, Sansa found under her pillow. That she repeats over and over and over to herself. Who left it? Unknown. Is she being tested by the queen, by Joffrey? Unknown. So she debates any and all potential outcomes of going to the godswood and seeing what this letter might reveal. Um, from a knight, a knighted rescue to execution served up on ice, uh, Illin style. Uh, her bedmaid checks in. Uh, we learn that Sansa believes that all that that she believes that all of her attendants are spying on her and working for the queen. Um, is she paranoid? Who knows? But that's what she believes. Uh, I bring this up as a reminder uh, of the true torture she's being put through. She can't really even make friends at all with anybody because she believes she's being spied on by everybody. So as she dreams of home and her family, uh, as she lays kind of a wee, uh, lays awake there in bed, a commotion outside provides just the distraction she needs to actually go to the godswood unnoticed, something that she had been debating not doing. So she seizes the opportunity, winds her way secretly to the godswood, and um, she meets the sender of the message, Sir Dantos. Uh, if you remember Sir Dantos, this is the man that she saved from Joffrey's wrath at his own name day tourney. He's a fool now that feels more like a knight than ever. He vows to get Sansa back home to repay the favor of her saving his life. And while she doesn't really think he's a great option, she has to admit that as options go, she's a little short. So she decides to ask about the plan, and she doesn't get rewarded with much. It lacks detail, but he swears an oath to a tree, and so she decides it's cool. So she rushes back to her room after agreeing to follow uh, in Sir Dantus' plan, 
uh, and she runs into Sandor Clegane. Literally, she almost takes him, him and herself down a tumble of stairs. So he's drunk and rough with her, but he escorts her back, telling her the history of his house. Briefly, it's uh, that his father saved Lord Lannister from a lion attack with his uh, kennel of dogs, and that three of those dogs died protecting Lord Lannister from that lion attack, and uh, that action got him knighted, got him lands, and is the reason that they have three dogs on their flag. Um, and, of course, no Sansa chapter would be complete without a completely over-the-top threat from the Hound. I'll have a song from you whether you will it or no. Fucking Christ, man. Jeez. So, that's how the chapter ends. So, wow. Yeah. I, I find this really hard to read because I have so much, like, sympathetic embarrassment for Sir Dantos. Yeah. Like, a lot of it. Yeah. Mm. Well, what do you... Uh, go into that. Let's yeah, tell her. <laughs> <laughs> just... He's just a dumb old drunk, right? And <laughs> his intentions are good, but it's just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah and what does it say... Like... What does it say about Sansa that she's actually willing to listen to him? Yeah, I feel like she'd be better off listening to Sandor Clegane at this point, but... <laughs> I think it speaks to the just the depth of the abuse that Sansa's being put to, that she's willing to turn to Ser Drunken Dantos and his plan of just come back to the Godswood whenever you can and maybe it'll be time, maybe not. Uh, I mean, she's to the point now where she's thinking that maybe she should turn in the letter she got just to prove that she's being quote-unquote good for Cersei. I mean, just the the psychological effect that this abuse is starting to have on Sansa is really, to me, heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah, you guys are coming down pretty hard on on uh, Dantos. I, I, I uh, maybe maybe I'm just uh, you know trying to trying to give the guy a break or something. But you know, he <laughs> he says he he makes a, an interesting little speech about you know how he used to be a knight and didn't respect himself and drove himself to drinking. And now that he's a fool, he, he feels more like a knight. He, he remembers what it was like and feels like he needs to behave that way. And it notes, you know, to contrast that, that he does have wine on his breath. Um, and like any exactly. alcoholic would says, uh, would says, Oh, just, just one cup just to calm my nerves. But, uh, you know, I I'm some changed. Credit. I I'm think changed. He's trying. I think he is too. And good for him. But is his trying enough to that Sansa should place all her trust in him? I don't know. But she, like like you said in your summary, she finds herself short on options. Yeah, and you know she's taking a she's taking a chance. She's taking a risk. Yeah, you think it's true what Sir Danto says about they're watching me too? <laughs> Does anyone really care what that guy's doing? No. Yeah, I want to know how the letter got to her in the first place. Good question. I'm, I'm sure. I, yeah, how good did question. that letter get under her pillow with how closely guarded she is? Yeah. Good point. So, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, we'd just be speculating to answer. He mm-hmm. found he found one handmaiden that wasn't uh, a spy. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Magic. What was that? 
I just mumbled magic. I shouldn't have. Magic. It's just, it's, it's just my dream that magic. I've got the magic. <laughs> no. <laughs> do you guys think you'd have gone to the Godswood? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, if I was Sansa, for sure. Because like you already said, she's got nothing else going on right now. So any glimmer of hope is worth chasing. I don't well, know I'm, if I would. Yeah, I'm a coward I'd love to say that I would. Yeah. I, I would love to say that I would. But, you know, she's got even this physical reminder of the last time. Was it Marin again? Or was it Boris it was Blunt? Boris, I think. Of this sounds. bruise wow. on her stomach of him punching her with, her with his mailed fist. Like, man. Again, I just, I just am so behind Sansa on this reread. You guys have, of course, picked it up clear from when we started this book that I'm re- really behind Sansa. Or for, started this podcast, I should say. But mm. just, I'm just really feeling for this chick this time. She's... Going through hell. I don't think I'd have gone. I'm a coward. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to say I would. And Brooke, I believe you would. You totally would. Just knowing you, you'd do it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I, th- well, <laughs> I wouldn't, go I wouldn't ahead. say you wouldn't. I wouldn't say either of you wouldn't. Well, it's, it's maybe less. I mean, I'm trying to be funny. Maybe it's less cowardice. I think my brain would convince me that someone's trying to trick me, especially given that she's been tricked before. And I, I think my brain eventually would say, just don't. Just don't do anything. Let this blow over. Like I'll find another way. But I don't know. How, how about how about the fact that she? Uh, there's a little moment where she imagines and, and actually sounds like she believes that Arya is safe at home. Yeah, she is thinking about her. She's thinking about her in a deluded way. Why would she think that she made it home? Maybe that's all that she can hold on to at this point. Yeah, it's just it's a good point. I forget sometimes, Matt, that you come from a place of hope. Right, you come from a place of absolute despair and wreckage. <laughs> she's probably lying to herself. I mean, to be yeah. honest, yeah, yeah, she's she's trying to hold on to anything positive she can, and yeah, yeah, she's just you talk you talk about depth of wreckage and stuff like that. It's just that's Sansa, man. Yeah. I still contend that of out of all the Starks, well, maybe not Arya after we see what happens to Arya next chapter. She might be in a little bit more of a pickle. But uh, Sansa's definitely in one of the worst situations that any of the Stark kids could be in. Uh, we see that night theme come up again, night with a K, uh, with both Dantos and Sandor in this chapter, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, both of whom are, are kind of putting on a show of being much more chivalrous than any quote-unquote normal knight. You've got Marin Trant and Boris Blunt who are uh, knighted sares, and they're punching a little girl with their mailed fist mm. while Dantos is is risking his life to help her. And, uh, you know, Sandor, despite all his uh, roughness with Sansa, you can you can definitely see that there's some affection in there. Yeah, Sansa even holds out hope when she's thinking about possibilities that the gallant uh, Balin Swan might be the one leaving the message. Right? Oh yeah, and uh-huh. <laughs> and in in a bleak contrast, yeah, it's it's uh, the drunken fool that's being more of a knight than any of the members of the King's Guard. So. It's a theme that just keeps coming back. I even thought that this one line by Sandor, which came off as very rough because he's like grabbing her by the face when he's saying it. He says, "A hound will die for you, but never lie to you." And he'll look you straight in the face. And I thought that might almost be his own uh, untender way of expressing his devotion to her, you know? Um, maybe, maybe not. A hound will die for you, but never lie to you. 
and he'll mm. look you straight in the face. I don't know. Maybe he's saying something else there in his the only way he knows how to say it. It's just hard I, to take anything <laughs> anything too too nicely when you're being gripped by the face. Yep. Like that. Exactly. That's why I'm saying is it's like he's grabbing her when he's <laughs> saying it. That's the way uh, Sandor works, I think. Sandor, this guy can't win. I love you. I'm going to grab your face until it breaks. Yeah. yeah. Some people give hugs. Sandor clutches chins. So uh, do we, do we hear about uh, the story of Florian Jonquil uh, in this, and our readers I don't think have heard much more than a mention of this before. Um, Sansa compares Sir Dantos to her Florian um, and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And uh, I, I looked because I, I realized oh, I don't really know this story. Like they reference it occasionally. There isn't much out there from what I found. It's it's kind of vague. There's some songs about it apparently, but but George never wrote the songs or, or hasn't released them yet because we don't know the full story. He found Jonquil and her sisters bathing naked in a, a pool. Um, and he's a fool and a knight, so not a, a well-known knight or a rich knight. But that's kind of all you get. There's there's not much of a story there. It's kind of a, a weird for for George not to flesh out that background when he uses it as, as metaphor in the story. I thought it was kind of interesting that he hasn't fleshed it out. Yeah, I think you're right. Unless he's treating it like a, a trope within yeah. the universe like yeah, everybody knows sure. about the fool and the girl like yeah. whatever but uh yeah there there might be something else missing there it's it's even a trope kind of just in our world right just you know kind of the the relationship that would never work out the guy that doesn't seem like a hero that it turns out to be one yeah you know, it's kind of a it's yeah. a well-known trope in general so you're right maybe he's just relying on that and it's kind of one of his inside jokes that he never tells it because he assumes everyone will fill in the blanks agreed in the blanks ourselves sure uh, all right. Uh, anything else uh, for you guys on Sansa? Uh, we can move on to Arya. Matt, you get Arya two weeks in a row. Have at it. Arya, horse face, underfoot, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, this chapter is something else. Um, so we return to the young survivors of the Lannister attack on the Holdfast. Those survivors being Arya, Gendry, Hot Pie, Lamy, and Weasel, uh, who is the little two, three-year-old girl. And they've started calling her that. So looking principally for food, but finding only burned out homes and scorched fields, the situation of these kids is getting more and more dire or desperate. They'd already returned to the Holdfast where they found all the unburied dead of the battle the previous night, including, aw, Yorin. Uh, however, Yorin is laying amongst four Lannister men with his head split in half by an axe. I love to imagine that he really went down swinging and took a lot, took a lot with him. They had to pay a high price to take old Yorin down. Totally. Um, they do, however, find three adult survivors from their party, uh, Cutjack, Kurz, and Tarber, who, if you'll remember, were the ones who were dispatched to that uh, tower the night of the attack to be on the lookout. Um, Kurtz later dies of a festering arrow wound, but uh, and Cutjack and Kurz abandon the kid, or um, Cutjack and Tarber, excuse me, just up and abandon the kids one day, taking pretty much anything of value. 
uh, that could have helped them survive. So anyways, returning back to Arya, she's from the, from the vantage point of a high tree. She notices a small village on the banks of the lake that seems to be inhabited. So deciding to check it out with Gendry, they leave Hot Pie, the injured Lamy, and Weasel behind, promising to come back. Now, it's during this time alone that Gendry uh, reveals that he knows Arya isn't Eri. Eri? Despite Arya's denials, she's unable to prove it by whipping her cock out, as Gendry demands she do. <laughs> so Arya, deciding to trust Gendry, reveals her true identity. And we get a great comical moment of Gendry bumbling over trying to apologize to Arya, uh, realizing he's in the presence of a highborn um, gal. Uh, trying to apologize for his whipping the cock out uh, demands and stuff like that. Uh, anyways, continuing on their quest to discover the situation of this little village by the banks of the lake, they decide to split up to avoid detection. Arya continu- um, continues to approach the village by sticking close to the shore, and as she gets closer, she comes upon a gibbet of rotting human corpses. <laughs> along with two guardsmen outside of this largest building in the village uh, that's by the the shore there. Arya assumes correctly that they are Lannisters. So she sees kind of two flags, uh, kind of difficult to see, uh, but the one looks like the Lannisters, and the other is a yellow flag with three dogs on the front, where if you hearken back to... uh, the story that Sandor told in the last chapter, you know what those three dogs mean and uh, clever storytelling by George there. So still in hiding, she suddenly hears a commotion and notices that it's Gendry being caught. He's not nearly as sneaky as Arya was, uh, doesn't have that water dancer training, and he does get caught by the Lannister guards. Arya races back to the other kids and recruits Hot Pie to go back to try and save Gendry. Um, However, upon their return, they are discovered as Hot Pie almost immediately yields to the Lannister men. So taken captive by Gregor Clegane and his men, um, Arya and Co. are commanded to lead the men to where Lamy and Weasel are hiding. Doing so, they find Lamy alone. Uh, he claims Weasel had run off. And the chapter ends when one of the Lannister men notices Lamy's leg wound and asks if he can walk. When Lamy replies that he can't and he'd have to be carried, the man casually picks up his spear and stabs Lamy through the throat. Ah! Yeah. Ooh. Really grim chapter. Thankfully, we got that humor with uh, Gendry and Arya there for about a, a half a page or so, but uh, after and, that, it gets rather sad. And the humor of the yield thing. The yield thing is one of the greatest <laughs> dark humor bits I've ever read. I love it. <laughs> It is good. Just yield. I yield. Yield. Especially when Lamy's like, what will happen if the wolves come? And Arya's like, just yield. Just yield. Yield. Yeah. It just walks away. Oh, I love it. I notice like each chapter has a comedic moment in this this block of chapters. And uh, that was definitely that one. Yeah. That one and the one where Arya is talking about how she's watching the black, was it swans on the lake? Mm -hmm. And she's like, they were so beautiful. She just wanted to be one of them. Or she also one. wanted to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a funny bit in this. This is loaded with little funny bits. I mean, it's a dark 
chapter. You got the bodies and the rotting and, and everything. But it's very dark. But the kids at, are eating bugs. Yeah, but at the same time, you got uh, Daddy's boy Gendry thinking hurts him. <laughs> like she comments about how he makes this face when he tries to think that it, that it looks <laughs> oh, like yeah. it's hurting him. <laughs> And I just kept thinking somebody could make a killing if they sold sculptures or paintings of Gendry wearing his bull helm in the Rodan thinker pose. Yeah, the thinker pose. <laughs> like the make the make the bull's helm like with a a frowny like concerned painful face. That'd be brilliant. Get on Someone that. do I that. Think I think we've got some listeners who are artists, so maybe we'll we'll hold a contest or something. Um, I love that. Or I don't love it, but I I appreciate, again, that when we first started with the Arya point of view in this book, everything was going great. I mean, prospects were pretty good for her. She had been saved from capture by the Lannisters. She was heading north home. Yorin seemed to be in total control of the situation. He knew how to avoid trouble. They had wagons through full of supplies. She had made some friends. And now everything has just gone to shit. Like, Yorin's dead. Lamy killed. Like, it was nothing. Yeah, the Brotherhood uh, is falling apart. Yeah, that two-year-old right? girl running away. Like, what's going to happen to her? <sighs> I'll admit that's the thing that stuck with me the most out of this whole chapter is what happened to Weasel. Yeah. Like it's, it's really, it's just, there's no safety. Never get comfortable because Mm -hmm. then stuff like this happens. I I was, I I felt for Weasel, but I was mostly upset at Cut Jack and Tarber. Oh man. So much for the brotherhood. Like, fuck you, Cut Jack. I thought we were bros, man. You're just going to take off. Yeah. Remember that whole scene and how we ranted and raved about how great it was that the Night's Watch recruits were stipping, sticking up for each other at the end? <laughs> and it it's like, let's just ditch apart. these kids. Yeah, we let's got Let's just ditch these kids. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't know who's the bigger douchebag, those two or that guy who, who stabbed Lamy through the throat. I really can't decide who's bigger. Yeah, mm. on that point, George really paints these guys, uh, Amory and uh, I suppose the Mountain too. As real villains. Like, usually yeah. his stuff is kind of gray. You know, people have their own motivations and, um, you know, they're making decisions based on those motivations. And, you know, you can kind of see the, the side. But these guys, you know, the bodies and the just lighting everything on fire. They even talk about how they would light the lake on fire if they could. Like, they're just pretty much villains. Mm-hmm. You know? Agreed. Yeah. He doesn't do that a lot, but he does it here for sure. Yeah, that's that's really true. It reminded me a little bit of what I've been kind of watching in the little spare time I have. I've been watching on Netflix the Vietnam in HD stuff. Well, there was only one thing I could say about the war in Vietnam. Well, there's only one thing I could say about the war in Vietnam. And uh, I'm not trying to get political here on if you know Vietnam and all that. Just the observations from watching the show that they would talk about how um, these U.S. soldiers in Vietnam, many of them, they never knew who was a bad guy and who was a good guy when they'd go into a village, quote unquote, good and bad guys. You know, who's Viet Cong because they dress up just like normal villagers and everything. And so they learned to become fairly desensitized to killing Vietnamese people 
And, you know, you hear terrible stories about mass deaths and stuff like that that went on in some of those villages and everything. And it reminded me a little bit of this where they've just become – these Lannister people just become so desensitized to these people actually being people. Um, they mention that they're looking for Beric Dondarrion uh, who apparently is still around and kicking and causing trouble enough that they're out killing people trying to find out where he is. Um, that they've become almost desensitized and can just kill on demand. They can stab a kid through the throat without thinking twice. But yes, definitely villains. That's all I have to say about that. You made me feel bad for calling them villains, comparing them to our soldiers in Vietnam. But because uh, I, I think that was compared, me, <laughs> huh? <laughs> that was me that did it. Don't you feel bad? <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm the one that called them villains. Uh, anyway, they are. They definitely are. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Sansa thinks about Arya in her chapter. Arya thinks about Sansa in her chapter, about Sansa might recognize her the way she looks now, but she'd pretend not to. And how sad that is. <laughs> and I don't think it's true either, but more, sad. More black humor. That's another good line. Yeah. I noticed some interesting uh, parallels with Arya and Sansa. I thought it was cool that they placed their chapters right next to each other. And I found it more similar than I thought it would. I, I thought, you know, since these two chapters are next to each other, I'm going to kind of compare how they're reacting to their situation. And I found some interesting similarities. They're both – the biggest one is that they're both working to adapt to their situations. You know, Sansa's learned – and some would call this weakness, how she's learning – you know, I've got to act this way when I'm around Cersei or else I'll get punched in the stomach by Marin Trant. She's kind of learning how to adapt and survive. She's definitely in survival mode in King's Landing. How do I need to survive? Okay, I need to act this way when I'm in public with Cersei. I can't say these things. I have to say these things, so on and so forth, if I want to go home uh, for the night unbruised. Arya is the same way, and, and we get some even physical manifestations of that, of, you know, she finally ditches her shoes and at first, walking around uh, barefoot, she had blisters and everything. But after a while, they hardened and become, became calloused. And I think they're both doing a fairly good job of, uh, despite the fact that they're both very much in survival mode. I think Arya's in survival mode too, resorting to eating bugs and things like that. Um, but they're both, you know, adapting to those situations and learning how to survive. Yeah, well yes. put parallels. Uh, in fact, I don't think we're going to say anything more profound. Should we move on to Davos After Dark? <laughs> yes. The chapter's uh, pretty straightforward. Excited to see what happens with Arya next. Actually, I'm kind of scared to see what happens next. All right. Well, uh, if you're going to leave us here, uh, this is where we start going into the super spoilery section of the uh, of the podcast. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be back here. We'll be back with episodes 20 through 24 of A Clash of Kings. So uh, join us then. Uh, but make sure you turn it off right now if you don't want to be spoiled because we're going to dive into it, dive deep. Uh, thanks, everybody. Davos After Dark. So, uh, I thought we might start with the chain. Mm. Mm -hmm. Did you guys suspect what it was going to be used for at this point? Because he gives no indication that it's going to go in the water. Yeah, yeah I had no, no idea. I was like, well, are they going to use it for Red Rover? Like, I had no idea. I also question... I think he mentions like he wants a thousand of the links, right? Yeah. I don't know that it's enough. That would have to be a really long damn chain. I want to look at the map and see how far across it is. 
Uh, you know, Blackwater Bay isn't, you know, at its entrance and stuff like that, especially close to King's Landing. It's, there's not, it's not very big. So I'm looking now. A thousand links might do the trick. Because you got to go deep too, right? That's what she said. It'll like, it's got to be a certain height, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's a big undertaking besides just building the chains. You've got to put in place the device, you know, to kind of raise and lower it and all that stuff and set it out over the water and everything. That's Yeah. It's a it's an effort that's a big for sure. project. Yeah. Yeah. It's also just Good a really Tarion cool idea. It off. Yeah. <laughs> like high marks for for uh for Tyrion, high marks for George for thinking of it. It's the kind of thing that uh when people think about successful authors and what makes them, that's the kind of creativity you need. I'm just going to imagine out of thin air the idea of someone building a chain to keep ships from escaping. Wait, is it original? What the hell? I don't know. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta Google this now. Has somebody done giant, that before? Giant chain boats. <laughs> oh my Google food flow. He does sometimes use use his history. Uh, as yeah, as a borrows. basis for for a lot of his battles and stuff, but uh, I don't know. I would have thought I would have uncovered this in my. I mean, I'm not I'm not like super well versed in historical battles and stuff, but I would have thought I would have heard of this one. I don't know. Either way, it's it's a cool idea. Think about well, think about how strong you'd have to be to pull that chain up. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, and also it it really it depends on and and Tyrion says it during that chapter. But he's more concerned about Stannis than Renly. He knows Stannis is going to come over water. Yeah. So that's where he immediately focused all his efforts. Yeah. yeah. And it worked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing, it was almost a throwaway. Uh, Tyrion goes down uh, from uh, Chetaya's and Alayaya's uh, room and uh, meets, meets Varys. And Varys mentions the tunnel. And says this was for another king's hand, but he doesn't. Who who couldn't who couldn't have his, uh, you know his. Oh, this is juicy. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's Tywin. I do too. Um, actually, I think in the chapter he mentions that it's for royalty and that it was Robert who used it. He said it was, he said it was for another king's hand. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, oh, he does. The, he does. The, the I have to go back and check. The couldn't oh, have yeah. his honor besmirched. Right, that Man, couldn't, that couldn't yeah. suffer anyone seeing him go into a a brothel, right? And that just oh. reminded me immediately of Tywin, who says, "I'll not have these whores besmirching our name." And then we know, of course, yeah, what happens sh- with Shay, Shay later. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Shay thing really uh, throws a lot of evidence Tywin's way of it being Tywin's. It's just oh, more yeah, evidence of Varys being Varys, if it's true. Obviously, it's just a theory, right? I have no evidence, but. It's just a, it's just I, more fun of Varys being Varys. He's being chummy mm-hmm. with Tyrion. He could very easily give him this information about his father, and does not. But but what if it was John Aaron? Him. Could be. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could be. It could have been dead for all we know. We don't know, right? But yeah, it's just a theory. But I like that. It. Would be cool if it was John Aaron. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it, it's mean, obviously it would be a so big nice. project. I know, right? That's why it would be so cool. It would have to be a big project building these tunnels and stuff. Yeah. And so I, I looked it up to get the numbers right. Tywin served his hand for 19 years. So that would be plenty of time to probably 
get that going. Um, John served for like 15 or 16 years, so also enough time to get it going. Varys was but around it for Tywin's reign as hand, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't necessarily have to be during Varys's wow. time. Oh, um, just Aaliyah could known. be one of their daughters. Yeah. Ooh, how would that be? Yeah. Oh, Brooke. Ooh, this gets more <laughs> <Wow>. saucy. <laughs> we have our new our new crackpot for the next heir to Casterly Rock. Perfect. I'm getting <laughs> all Balin Swanee here. I'm getting all Balin Swanee here wanting to gossip and everything. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Uh, we got theories coming out our ass tonight in, in uh, Davos <laughs> After Dark. All right. Uh, uh, you guys want to talk about Hodor a little bit? I would. I wish I could. We could say more about more about the guy. I wish that there had been more revealed after this, but really, George pulls back until poor Hodor just gets warged like a yeah, like a toy town bicycle. Yeah, yeah. warged like a town bicycle. <laughs> oh, Brooke, I, that's so dark and so wonderful. It now, really now is. it's also not very fair. The town bicycle gets ridden by everybody. Brand's the only one pounding this thing into the ground. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Thank you for that correction. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, boy, does he pound. I, yeah. I guess I was referring to more uh, some of the the vague theories about Duncan the Tall. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't remember where it even comes up or who thought of it or, I don't know, maybe I just read it on the forums or something. I think one of you guys brought it up too, but... Um, just that Nan Nan maybe mentions Duncan the Tall being around in the north, and maybe that that Hodor is the offspring of that. Uh, yeah, the um, well, not necessarily like a son, but uh, a descendant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of Sorry, the timeline would be uh, him being a son. They, I think, one of the theories is that um, uh, I lost my train of thought a little bit. Yes, <laughs> during the when Bran in a Dance with Dragons sees that vision uh, of the, in the well, he sees the Godswood at Winterfell. One of the various people and groups of people that he sees there is a a lady kissing a big tall knight. And the um, I think yeah. there's some theories out there that that big tall knight was Duncan the Tall, and uh, Hodor's a descendant of of all that. We do get some you know some interesting little phrases in there like we talked about during the main portion of the podcast uh mentioning that you know hodor would have been were it not for um kind of his simple mind and everything he would have he could have been a, a great knight and stuff so maybe that's george hint hinting at us yeah, yeah a little bit a little a little wink wink nudge mm-hmm. nudge know what i mean know what i mean how, how lame is it that bran remembers this and so far as we know nothing comes of it in the series yeah, I know. That's so disappointing. They make such a big deal of it, especially in the yeah. first book. And it never, you know, he realizes what it is. And then before too long, he's just, you know, he's off trekking in the north and nothing ever really comes of it. I mean, uh, it's almost like Gurm just changed his mind. Like, yeah, I don't want to run that down. We'll just, we'll just leave it as a loose end. I mean, I guess it supposedly could come back in the end somehow, but I, I don't know how it would matter at this point. I think. I think it would be more as just kind of a character, you know, just a bump in the road 
for Jamie, you know, like maybe somehow he and Bran meet up again and Bran's like, hey, you're the one that pushed me from the window. Meanwhile, Jamie's gone through this great reformation yeah, this process that we seem to be in the middle of, uh, of becoming this rather good guy in my mind. Uh, and, and all of a sudden it's like, he's reminded of this and it kind of halts that maybe for a little bit or something. Yeah. Speaking of Jamie's transformation, I didn't bring it up uh, in the during the chapter because it's a little bit spoilery, but I found huge parallels between Dantos and Jamie in in mm-hmm. this. In that Dantos saying that it took him becoming a fool and a, a complete drunken oaf to be reminded of what it is to be a knight, and similarly, Jamie says that the white cloak has sullied him, right, and that it's taken being sullied by that to remember what a real knight should be and losing his, losing who he was, his hair, his, as Brooke said in a previous episode, his hand, his family, uh, that's, it, it took that being beaten down to remind him what it should be to be a knight. Right. Kind of interesting yeah. parallels right. there from two yeah, completely totally, opposite knights on the spectrum. Totally fits that knight theme that came up multiple times during this reading and yeah. throughout the series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a common theme um of uh you lose yourself to find yourself. Yes. Kind of a situation that's happened with both Dantos. Apparently with Dantos and Well, and or apparently not. <laughs> yeah, the sincerity of Dantos comes <laughs> yeah. into question. It was a little hard um, to play dumb during the chapter summary. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but he's basically being paid to do all this, right? Right. Yeah, but <laughs> so. he's in little fingers employ. Yeah. So, uh, but you'd have to wonder, you know, how sincere was Dantos? Um, there might have been some of that sincerity there and affection for Sansa. Yeah, I don't know. The main motivation did seem to be getting gran- getting grana. They'd call yeah. it in Brazil, getting cash. Brooke, I know you said uh, you would have you would have definitely gone to the Godswood. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think it, it lends to maybe your spirit of wanting to make something happen. Like, <laughs> go go do something. Stop just being this victim, right? Mm. I do. Yeah. You, do you guys think she has a lot of options? I mean, they t- they make a point in the chapter to talk about how she has kind of a, the run of the place as long as she doesn't leave certain areas. Do you think she's got some room to finagle her own way out? Screw Dantos, do it herself. Well, if, if she does, I don't know that she has the mental capacity to figure it out. Yeah, if she had I'm the not same... calling her a dummy, but she just doesn't think that way. Sorry, Brooke. No, no, I, I completely agree. Um, Arya was in almost the exact same position, but she had the resourcefulness mm. and the... Well, she was in the keep, surrounded by guards who were looking specifically for her. And she managed to sneak her way out. So that's just but, because she has like a skill set and a sense of resourcefulness that Sansa lacks. But if Sansa had that, I think she could find a way out. I mean, it's a huge place. She's referred to several times as just Joffrey's plaything, which is what she's become. So security is probably be a little more lax than when... Um, uh, Cersei was dedicating a lot more time to manipulate her. I think she could. I think she could escape. And I, I'm not trying to victim blame here, but 
she thinks of herself as a damsel in distress, so she's going to act like one. Ooh. You disagree? Maddie oh. disagrees a little bit. Oh, <laughs> the great Sansa Defender. Come to her aid, sir. I love Sansy. Man, get off <laughs> Sansa's dick, Matt. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> Riding uh, that I, thing like a bit of rough. I think it's a... <laughs> I think it's 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 a little bit unfair to compare Arya and Sansa. Uh, the situations were a little different. Arya was able to capitalize on a lot of the confusion that was going down when she got out. Uh, things were still in kind of an uproar and people were running around and everything. And I don't know, arguably it might have been a little bit easier for her to s- escape in, in all of that confusion and craziness. Um, whereas things have kind of calmed down now. Uh, the The guys aren't looking for Sansa. They know right where she is and they know... You know, they've got her kind of contained. Um, I do agree that she she does kind of act the damsel in distress a little bit. Um, but also, I also agree with you completely that she doesn't possess that natural skill set of resourcefulness that Arya does. I think she's starting to learn it in her own unique Sansa way that we've also talked about before. Uh, and she will learn it, you know, as she hangs out with Littlefinger more. Um, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so 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 some see, slight you, disagreement there, Brooke. You see a lot of that in the sample chapter that we we haven't talked much about that, but the sample chapter that was released recently, um, you don't need to spoil, but just kind of how she's learned to use what she does have, right, and kind of kind of grow in that way. Mm. She's becoming a little little finger, little yeah. fingerette. Yeah, the littlest <laughs> finger. So two more things I kind of wanted to hit uh, in Dallas After Dark before we wrap it up. Uh, first, we kind of, I think we glossed right past the Alistair Thorne dismissal of <laughs> of Tyrion's. Uh, he's got the hand in a jar, and Tyrion's told that he's there to see somebody. And he says, ah, we'll do it later. And I don't actually remember whether anybody actually ever sees Sir Alistair or not. But what's the game there? So I, I always thought, even when Gior sent Alistair down there with the hand, it's like, well, you sent me a hand. Are they going to take it out of the jar and let it crawl around? Like, what's the game? Well, For one, it's the only evidence they really can present. Uh, yeah, so when Alistair finally gets in front of Tyrion, the hand has rotted away, I believe. Hmm. Like, so there's, It's rotting. Yeah, yeah there's, there's no true evidence to back up this ridiculous claim. And Tyrion already has a bad history with Alistair and doesn't respect him. Um, I think it's just a huge troll. Like... George is. We know that the whites and the and the others up beyond the wall are a serious problem. The Night's Watch <laughs> knows that it's a serious problem. We see the opportunity for this serious problem to be addressed and then totally ignored for all of the petty shit that's going down in this so-called war in King's Landing. So it's 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 really just a it's just a a little jab by George in yeah. my mind. You, well, you get, it's, it's a little bit interesting with Tyrion. So a quick, a quick recap. Tyrion has promised Gior that he would keep the Night's Watch needs in mind. He's come to King's Landing. He's kind of done. So he sent them some men, you know, a dozen or so guys that he sent them. Um, you know, I think he's tried to keep them in mind. And yet, you know, he had that moment on the wall where he kind of it felt like maybe something moved him a little bit, like, oh, maybe there is something weird about the Great White North. Maybe. But here he is with something that kind of should punch him in the face and be like, hey, look at me. And he's just kind of like, eh, eh, 
I got bigger things to worry about that are a lot more immediate. Yeah, it's a little bit of a reminder from George, maybe, that just what the rest of the realm even thinks about what's going on up there. Right. And And then uh, that that begs the question that was asked of would he have paid attention were it another member of the Night's Watch who came down? Yeah, I don't know. If it wasn't Thorn, and maybe it's, uh, um, oh gosh, who's the Shadow Watch guy? I totally, his name just completely blanked for me. No, not Yorin. The guy who runs Shadow Watch. Crap! I'll tell you either. I forgot his name. Now I'm going to look it up because it's going to bother me. I, he he's you mean East in contention to be Shadow Tower guy. Oh, Shadow Tower. What did I say? You said Shadow Watch, which is a combination of both. Shadow. <laughs> yeah, it's like me combining Kaluan. <laughs> yeah. I'm just combining the two castles together. Uh, Shadow Tower. It's a guy that was. He's in contention to become Dennis Bill Malister. Oh, there Malister. it is. Yeah. Dennis Malister. You know, someone like him who's got kind of a good reputation. If he would have brought the hand to King's Landing, would they have paid a it little bit mattered. more attention to him? Well, it's ir- it's ironic because they specifically sent Alistair because Gior said he had friends at court. <laughs> so right. the, fact, the fact that he's getting ignored because of who he is is very ironic given the reason that he was the one chosen. Or at least one of the reasons also to get him away from John. All right, uh, one last thing. Uh, do a little bit of fan service. Arya and Gendry. <laughs> People love to put them together despite the creepy age difference that exists today. She's nine and he's like 14 or something. Actually, she might be 10 now. But uh, anyway, the five-year age difference. Well, I think it's their cute little dead body date that really started all that. Yeah. But this is pretty much the end of their interaction, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, they have some more. They uh, they they escape. Um, they escape from Heron Hall together. Uh, they get captured by the Brotherhood without banners together. Uh, they get taken to an inn together, and then Gendry stays at that inn, and Arya moves on. Is what I remember. Is that right, Matt? Yep. But 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 it is, but I don't think they have a ton of. I don't think they have a ton of little interactions like this left. Mm. If that's, I agree with that. Yeah, nothing's like hitting me over the head. Yeah. But um it would have been cute just because he doesn't know of his parentage. Yeah. But once he did. Yeah, the... it, it would kind of bring in the uh the union that Rob and Ned Robert Triple B and Ned yeah. always wanted, mm-hmm. right? Without yeah. without Nothing's them even come knowing. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's kinda nice to think about Gendry looking out for Arya and protecting her, but Ultimately, I appreciate the fact that she is independent and can look out for herself and him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it might be her looking out for him eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what it is. It goes both ways, <laughs> right? Yeah. You can see very much that he cares to do that. He won't let her go alone into the woods, right? And she's very much the same way. You stay behind. I'll crawl forward because I'm quieter. Like I think I think they work well together for that reason that they're both they're both they both care right. Mm-hmm. They're not fucking cut jacks. Gosh. All right. Uh, anything else you guys wanted to hit in uh, in Davos After Dark? Nothing super interesting now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and close it out, Brooke. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. This is Brooke signing off, saying never get comfortable. Indeed. You know, Brooke once told me that 
I could relate any in, any happening in life to a lyric from the band The Hold Steady. Uh, and I've taken that to heart, and I believe that it's true. And so this is Matt reminding you that uh, something that starts kind of recreational can end kind of medical. And for me, it's taken a long time, but chewy. We're home. <laughs> Chills. So good. Good night, everybody. <laughs> good night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night, my friends. Start a recreational. It kind of medical. It came out on Sartre and a time of its tentacles. Oh, P.S. Oh, Chewy looks really good for his age. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I think the Wookiees have been uh, throwing a lot of money at, um, like, hair implants and stuff. Yeah. Chewy looks de-aging products. They live in Utah. Yeah. Right. Maybe because yeah. and Han really Solo is looking good. Yeah. yeah, Han Solo looking old. Han Solo yeah. will always be sexy, though. One, one of my Facebook oh, yeah. friends actually posted, "Chewy, we're old." <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs>